Revelation chapter 17. We are rapidly nearing the end of the book, entering into this final section here. Uh, well, there's kind of two sections, 17 to 19, and then 20 to 22. But it's, uh, it's all wrapping up as we come to the end here in chapter 17. So let's begin. I'll read through the whole chapter. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, and uh, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh and goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. We're going to have fun with this tonight. All right, let's sing one more song. Ah. 
All right, so last week we didn't quite finish with chapter 16. We had that last little phrase to cover, uh, just the last paragraph there, uh, covering the seventh trumpet. So I did want to uh, read it very quickly. We, we talked about um, Armageddon and finished up there. Uh, how Armageddon, we believe it's the, the Mount of Gathering, Har, uh, Megiddon, uh, is, a, is a different word, May, uh, what is it? It's Mayon, Mayon, uh, there, uh, Mount of Gathering. We pulled that from uh, Isaiah 17, I believe, Isaiah 17 or 17 or 14, uh, and looked at that, at uh, that section, as well as in uh, Zechariah chapter. 14. So not really talking anything about Israel there. It's talking about the church and that he's gathered to uh, battle uh, believers, battle the church, the, the gathering of the saints there. Uh, this is the final push against believers uh, in this last step uh, as the nations come to gather around all of the forces. And we'll see more of that in this chapter as we see these 10 kings, uh, 10 horns that uh, kind of joined together with the beast to persecute the church. Like it, it all shows up here again because, as well, chapter 17 is, is zooming in again. Uh, like chapter 16 was a zoom in uh, to looking at the final, uh, you know, increase of this persecution that it's getting stronger. Uh, it was the same structure and same idea that we saw in the trumpets. Uh, but then when you have the bowls, it's an intensification. Things are getting worse. Um, well, but then when we get to chapter 17, 18, and 19, it's like he's zooming in specifically on the sixth and the seventh bowls or the sixth and the seventh trumpets and focusing and saying, hey, let's look specifically at this, and I want to show it to you. Uh, and so as we go there, uh, we'll see it. Uh, but there in the, in the seventh bowl, uh, you see the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple. This is God's voice here from the throne saying, it is done. And I made a quick reference to uh, Jesus's words from the cross on, in John 19.30 that this is a, a, a picture of two it is finished or it is done's. Here, these are the same word, tetelestai, uh, in Greek, that at the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished, and at the final bowl or final trumpet, God himself cries out, it's done. Uh, and we are in that time between the two duns uh, as, we, as we live out our lives here in this uh, period in history, this inter-advental period. So we keep looking there in chapter 16 uh, and it says and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake that had uh, never been since man was on earth so great was that earthquake and the city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great and that's what we're getting to here and made her Babylon the great uh, drink or drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away no mountains were to be found and great hailstones, 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on the people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because it was so severe. Uh, so we see that they don't repent. There's no repentance here. There's cursing of God. As we close out this section, 
somewhat. We, we close it out, but it's, it's as if this angel is saying, you want to get a better look at, at what we just saw? Okay, let's, let's zoom in and get an instant replay of this destruction of Babylon the Great. Uh, or, as we'll see tonight, the, uh, what is often referred to as the, the whore of Babylon. Okay, so let's look here. Then one of the seven angels. Okay, what, what seven angels? What, who's he talking about here? One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said. So again, this is tying it to the seven bowls. I would think if, if he gave us more specifics about which one of the seven this was, he would have said, it's the sixth one. Now, it's the, the one that was in line, the, the sixth one, because that's what we're zooming into is the sixth bowl. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the river Euphrates, and it was dried up, and it prepared the way for the kings to come from the east. And we see the dragon and the beast and the false prophet uh, gathering these kings together for battle. And so I think that's, that's where we're zooming into is this. And so he says, come, I will show you. This is the, the angel kind of pulling John along here to say, come, I will show you the judgment of this great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And the first time you read that, you're going, seated on many waters, what does that mean? Until you get a little bit further down. And the, the answer to that is actually given to us at the end of the chapter, right? Uh, in verse 15, it says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Anytime you see this idea of sitting, uh, whether it is by God or Jesus or um, uh, an, an evil entity, it's always talking about dominion, having control over, power over. Okay, And so when, when it says that this woman, this prostitute, is seated on, on many waters, it means that she's, she's holding sway over these people. Uh, as we see. And, and this is another one of those reasons that I, I can't read Revelation in a literal sense because there are so many things like this that the author says, I know this is confusing. Here, I'm going to give you a little piece of the puzzle. <laughs> you know, oh, those waters, by the way, you might miss out. Those are people. Uh, and he gives us that to say waters are people. And that doesn't make any sense without having some of that info plugged in for you. Um, and so, just thinking about that uh, as we have that there. Um, so as we get into the, the final chapters of the book, we see this vivid imagery and this, this final outcome that we're going to have. And, and remember, we got to remember that this is a letter to churches. Okay, this is a letter to, to seven churches that are going through severe persecution. They're, they're dealing with uh, the forces of the Roman government pushing them into worship of the emperor, uh, asking them to uh, give up their livelihoods, to not enter into the marketplace, to be able to uh, sell their wares or to buy anything, telling them, hey, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to bow the knee to Caesar first. And so this, this message is coming to them and it's giving them knowledge, a message that Christ is already victorious. Like, all of this is stated as if it's past. Like, like we see some things that are like, oh, and this is going to happen, and this is here. But it's stated as perfected and done. Right? Like, so that these 
Christians may be able to say, I've got nothing to worry about. I have nothing to worry about. I can rest secure in the fact that Christ wins the day and that I can stand firm in him knowing that no harm will come to me beyond maybe a little physical harm. <laughs> uh, and as, as Jesus would say, don't, don't look to those, or is it, is it Jesus or Paul? It says, don't look to those that can kill the... Jesus. Yeah, it was Jesus. Don't look to those that can kill the body, but look to those that can kill both the body and the soul in hell. Like, like ooh, that's, that's a little scary. Like, <laughs> like don't, don't just think about your flesh, but think about your soul. Okay? And that's what he's focusing them in on here, uh, saying that Christ is victorious despite all of the appearances that may look otherwise. And that should bring us comfort in the midst of, of suffering, in the midst of persecution. Um, and he, he as well describes the fate of the, the dragon here, the fate of the, the serpent, you may say, uh, that old serpent, which is the devil. And it brings us all the way back to the garden. I mean, we go all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3 at the fall, and we see the original twisting of God's plan, twisting of God's words here, uh, and that finally God is, is closing out this drama of redemption that he's been playing out for thousands of years. Uh, at, the, at this time, he's going to give us this glorious outcome where evil is defeated, and his people are redeemed and placed back into a, a right state with him. Uh, so everything's made right. Uh, if, if you just want to have a little fun and do something, read the first three or four chapters of Genesis and then put a pen in it, turn all the way to the end and read the last three or four chapters of Revelation. It's a beautiful parallel. Uh, it, it almost matches up. You, it's like watching Wizard of Oz backwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like it's like a chiasm. It's like a, a and, and a chiasm is a Hebrew poetry structure that has uh, a b c b a. Like a, in poetry, you remember a b a b a b. That's how we think of poetry. Poetry a lot of times, or a a b b c c uh, is poetry. But in in a chiastic structure, it will structure the whole thing as if it's a big sandwich with the best stuff right in the middle. <laughs> And so on the, on the ends, you get these arches that kind of connect to one another throughout. So just a fun exercise. If you want to have, have fun looking at it, you can see all kinds of parallels, and we'll get into some of them as we get further into uh, Revelation here. But, all right, so he says, I will show you the judgment of this prostitute who is seated on many waters, uh, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And that word sexual immorality is the word porneia. Uh, in Greek, uh, and it's used many, many times right here in this paragraph, uh, as well as throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, and it's used in unison with idolatry all the time. Um, idolatry and porneia or fornication, if you've got a, a King James, I think that's what it says here with her fornication. Um, that's the word that we get our word pornography from. It's porneia. Okay? It's, it is a junk drawer term for all manner of sexual immorality. So I think this is a good translation just to call it uh, sexual immoralities here. But I think we miss a little bit of what's going on 
if we don't see the, the financial components that are going on here. And we miss out on this in our culture uh, because we've kind of shoved, um, I say miss out, we, I don't really miss out on it, uh, but we, we don't see these connections because we have taken things like prostitution and put them way off to the corners of society. Um, and we don't talk about it. Shh, shh. But it was out front and center in these days, all the way up until the you know, 16, 17, 1800s. It was out front and center. Um, that, that was just the nature of things. You had women of the night. It's one of the oldest, <laughs> oldest uh, pro, um, uh, businesses around uh, is this idea of, of, a, of a prostitute that's here. And the kings of the earth have, have committed sexual immorality with her. And the wine of that sexual immorality, uh, the dwellers of the earth. And we see later this is always, when we see the dwellers of the earth in Revelation, it's referring to those who are not believers. Uh, and we see it specifically a little bit later in this chapter. It says those that do not or have not have their, had their names written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation. Okay, that's the earth dwellers. So these earth dwellers have become drunk. They've, they have drunk this, this wine of sexual immorality and they are intoxicated. They are hooked. Uh, they're addicted. In this time, in John's time and before, uh, temple prostitution would have been a huge thing. Uh, not for the Jews. Okay? That was one thing that set them apart that was different. But even all the way back to the time in Exodus when uh, the Israelites come out of Egypt, that was something that set the Israelites apart was they did not take place in this um, religious sexual immorality. But that was all around them, all around them. You wouldn't go to the, go to the temple and put on your suit and you know, come sit in, the, sit in the pew and listen to some music and raise your hands. No, you went to the temple and you brought your sacrifice and you left it there on the altar. Uh, I got I mixed company, so I got to watch my words. But that, that was the way that it worked. You had temple orgies and it was just a, a mess. Uh, and that's what he's writing about. He's, he's writing about this and he's seeing it around him. This is going on in Rome at the time, okay? And so he's, he's calling these things out as he, as he speaks, and his readers would know exactly what he's talking about. They would be like, oh, we know the prostitute you're talking about. We know all about her. She's this pagan religion uh, that is causing us so much grief and so much harm, that wants us to bow the knee and to do things the way it wants to do, uh, to give our money and give of ourselves to this and worship the emperor. It's in hand in hand with the emperor. So we see as we go on that the, the prostitute and the beast are right there with each other. And if you remember, the beast is what? Government entities. It's, it's demonically led. Well, the, the uh, prince of the power of the air, as, as Ephesians 2 says it, leads these governments and these uh, political entities and these kings and rulers to push people away from God and towards themselves, towards idolatry, uh, and they use financial and sexual and power all together. Those are the three big things that any, any, uh, any investigative uh, person, if you're a, you're a 
police officer and stuff. Those are the big three things for motive, right? Power, sex, and money. And that's all right in together here with the beast and his power and the temple prostitutes and their sex and the money that you're bringing there to hand over to get a better crop or to improve your welfare and your life. And, hey, oh, if I just give this, then I'll get back a hundredfold. And it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And today it's still around. Still around today, we just hide it a little bit better. And we put a, put a better, you know, dress on it. And, so, yeah, yeah, yeah that, some of it's still out there, but the, the nations are, are drunk with this. The nations have become drunk with it. They, they don't even see that they are addicted. They just have a longing and they just keep going after it, okay? And, and, and then we see here that the, the angel carries him away, and this is a, uh, a, a reference back to Ezekiel. This is kind of a commissioning ceremony almost. Anytime we see this idea of being carried away in the spirit, uh, you can bring it right back to the, to the prophets who use the same terminology. I was carried away in the spirit, or immediately I was in the spirit. And into a wilderness. Okay, so remember, she's seated on many waters, but she's in the desert. She's in the wilderness. That doesn't match up physically, but... This is not talking physically. These are all very symbolic terms, okay? If you try to put this into a picture in your head, which I've seen, uh, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they will gladly show you a picture of this you know, beast and the woman on, on her, and they'll be like, yeah, that's, that's it. Watch out. She's coming. And I'm, I'm, it's scary. They're scary images. They'll give you nightmares. Um, but it's, it's crazy looking here. Uh, but I, I don't think that... John ever meant for anybody to get those images in their mind. I think when he's saying it, they are thinking, I see the temple in my head. I see the temple. I see that picture of Caesar. Uh, I'm looking at it. Okay? So he has his images, and I want us to get our image of what this looks like in our day. Okay? And oh, what should we bring to mind, and how, how does this still fit for us today? Uh, because it fit for them in their day. It fit for uh, the, the Romans that came later uh, when Rome fell. It fit for uh, France and for Germany and for England and for all different civilizations. We can apply this because that's the way God's prophecy works. Is it doesn't just apply once. Because if it did, most of the Old Testament we could just kind of throw away and be like, oh, that's already done. It's history. It's, it's finished. I was listening to somebody this week, and they were uh, talking about the uh, virgin birth. And they were like, is it really necessary for us to, to believe in the virgin birth and, and look in that? And they, they were just kind of asking this question because uh, there's far out folks that are saying, oh, Jesus might not have done this. And uh, it's weird. But they were asking these questions, and they started looking at the actual reference to a virgin shall conceive and bear a child and do that. And it's an Old Testament prophecy that had a fulfillment in its time. And so if you give that to a Jew today and say, oh, it said, behold, a virgin will conceive. And be like, yeah, a virgin did conceive or a maiden did conceive and have a child. And it freed us from captivity and bondage. And I'm really glad it did because that meant the Davidic line could go on. And yay, it was, it was good. It was already fulfilled. It was done. We didn't need any more fulfillment. But God's prophecy doesn't just work that way. He's got one fulfillment. And then there's more. It keeps going. Uh, the, the way his, his truth works is it's 
not just truth for one time, it's truth for all ages. It keeps going. Uh, it's a perfect kind of truth. Yeah, it's not done. It's not done. He's got more uh, to look at. And, and we see divinely that uh, the, the biblical authors, like Matthew, will use references to this, you know, this virgin birth. And will say, behold, a virgin shall conceive. And say, yeah, that's talking about Jesus. In the, in, under the influence of the Spirit of God, he's taking that and saying, yeah, it's a prophecy that was fulfilled twice. Once in the Old Testament time, and it was fully completed there. And it's fully completed even more in Christ. So... Just giving you that little little bit there. All right, so he carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness, and I saw a woman, this is the grace prostitute that he's talking about, saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Okay, so now she's sitting on waters and on a beast. How does that work? I don't, maybe there's a cup on the back of the beast. I don't know. We get even worse because she's also sitting on seven hills. Uh, that are the, are, <laughs> so it gets really confusing if you try to wonder, what is she actually sitting on? But... We'll, we'll, we'll stop, because I think you get the point that this is figurative. This is figurative. All right, so she is sitting on a scarlet beast uh, that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Turn over to chapter 12, verse 3. Revelation 12, 3. We see another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Uh, we've got... The same image here. Same image here. This is the same beast uh, that we were looking at. This dragon uh, that was there in chapter 12. Okay? And I think this is purposeful that we're supposed to look back and see this. Because what's happening in chapter 12 to chapter 13? Who is this beast in chapter 12, this dragon, pursuing? A woman, right? Pursuing a woman. Well, here in chapter 17, we see that there's also a woman. And so we get the comparison of these two women. One, the woman that is the church, that is the, the Israel of God. And the other, this woman that is this great prostitute, that is the city of, the man, city of man. Uh, so this is the, the city of God versus the city of man, as Augustine would put it in his terminology, and say that there's, there's two distinct peoples that are here. And... The dragon has a role to play in both of them. Either you're pursued by him or you are wooed by him. Either you are in bed with him or you are fighting against him. Like that's the, the parallel that's here as we see these two women. And there's, there's no middle ground. It's, it's everybody falls in one of these camps. Uh, you are either, as Jesus would say, either you're sowing for me or you're sowing against me. All right, so this beast... Full of blasphemous names, seven heads, ten horns. And, and then we see the woman uh, arrayed as a prostitute. Uh, as a prostitute would have been in those days and still kind of is today uh, in a lot of ways. What, what do we see? Purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and pearls. And she's got the, the wine, the, the cup of abominations and impurities of her pornea in her hand. She's... Got her wine glass, and she's decked out from head to toe in all of the garb that's there. And notice all of this very rich stuff that's here. Purple, scarlet, those are not cheap things. Purple in this day would have come from Tyre and Sidon. Uh, they got the dye for the purple ink by squishing a little, uh, it's a, what do you call them? Um, it's like a little shell. It's, it's the, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a small mollusk that's there that they harvest out of the sea, out of the Mediterranean. Uh, that the, the folks in Tyre get this, and they take them and they squish them. And when they squish them, the blue ink comes out, and this this ink is used to dye fabric in that time. It's Tyrian blue. We still call T Y R I A N uh, from Tyre. Tyrian blue is a shade of blue all the way back from this day. That was one of the few ways that you could get blue dye, blue purple dyes. Uh, during this time. And so they mixed it with red, red, and purple, and blues, and these rich fabrics. Uh, they usually get the cotton from, you know, Egypt and pull that cotton up, and they dye it and then go out and resell it. And the, the merchants from Tyre would go all around, and you see Tyre and Sidon get referred to even in the New Testament with, uh, with uh, Jesus, who speaks against them. Uh, hmm, there's reference to Satan himself, or, or the, the accuser himself, being the, the king of Tyre, uh, all the way back there in Isaiah 14, or Isaiah 17. Okay, so uh, we see just the, the richness that's here, the, the wealth, the celebrity, the beauty of the harlot here. And she has a very temporary, fleeting beauty. Temporary beauty. Not, not a a, a full-time thing. This is only going to last an hour, as we see later, when they all join forces and they give over their power to the beast. It lasts for an hour, just an hour. It's tiny, little time in comparison to everything else. Uh, and, and I think there's also a comparison here because we see this, this woman being portrayed and, and kind of opened up and, and described. And John is going to almost marvel. He's going to marvel in a bit of horror, but also in a little bit of not, not attraction. It's more of, a, it's more of a, an amazement. He, he's amazed at her, but kind of recoils at the same time. We get both senses of the word. It, uh, where, where it says that he... Um, marveled, he actually, uh, it's a doubling of that. It, it, where we say he marveled greatly, it's I marveled at my marvelings. You know, <laughs> he, he double marvels uh, at this. So as we see her, uh, flip over to chapter 21. Flip over to, to chapter 21. And I want you to see uh, another woman that is that is revealed here. That is revealed here in, in Revelation 21, verse 9. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Okay, same terminology, same idea as what we see here in chapter 17. It's one of those seven angels. And he says, he says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Okay, so remember, we're looking at these two women. You've got the woman who's pursued by the beast, who is also the bride of the lamb, and you've got the woman who's in bed with the beast. Okay, and, and again, verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city. Okay, it's a parallel. We see a parallel between that section in 21.9 and chapter 17. And we're meant to. We're meant to kind of draw lines towards these and go, this really reminds me of something I've already read. Oh, wait a second, let me make a comparison. And it's a, it's a compare and contrast you might do in, if you're trying to make a decision or something, saying, there's the good, here's the bad, and there's a lot more bad on one side and a lot more good on the other here. And what's written on her forehead? 
What's written on her forehead? Her name. Her name. Uh, Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. And we ask, you know, why does she have the name of an old city on her forehead? Babylon at this point is gone. Okay, there's no Babylon left. Babylon was destroyed uh, by the Achaemenid Persians when they came through. The Medes and the Persians, Darius, came through, crossed over uh, the Euphrates, and wiped out Babylon. It was gone. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was destroyed. That was in the Old Testament. It's done. So why, why is Babylon coming back here? It's because Babylon, or Babel, keeps coming up in Scripture. We see the Tower of Babel there in Genesis as a confusion, as the people not obeying and God saying, you will obey me, and forcing their hand and causing them to disperse instead of gathering in one place. And that place, Babel, becomes Babylon. And Babylon, throughout Scripture, becomes just this this image of the world forcing itself against God and, and building itself up and saying, I can attain to greatness better than you can, pushing itself and its agenda and its uh, desires ahead of God's desires. And so uh, it, it builds on here. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. That's a name. That's a lot to fit on your forehead, <laughs> but it's, it's there. It's all right. tattooed right there, small print. Maybe they get that stuff on the rice. So oh, yeah, yeah. Sm- small prints, no problem. Maybe you had to zoom in to get, get it. Maybe it was a small, like on a blemish was right there because I, I think that would have made her look not quite as good looking. Uh, but, you know, uh, maybe if you saw that when you were being wooed, you'd go, I don't think I'm going to go there. Like the, the price looks like it's too much. But maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point is that people see the price People see exactly what she is, and they fall headfirst anyway. Or maybe they don't see it all. Maybe it's only visible to those of us who have new eyes and have had our eyes opened by Christ. Who knows? We can, we can play around with that kind of idea all the time. Okay, So, so we, we get the re- revealing of this, this woman, uh, and, and she's bad news. Bad news here. Very seductive, but she is not going to um, last she pales in, compar- in comparison to the radiant, spotless bride that we see in chapter 20, uh, 21 there. Uh, and we see that uh, you know, John makes this comparison to the many waters and to the, the peoples, just saying that she exerts so much influence over people. Her sin is, is depicted in terms of adultery, which uh, is this metaphor that keeps getting used throughout Scripture uh, as a... Uh, picture of idolatry. Go over to Jeremiah uh, chapter 51 real fast, right toward the end of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 51 uh, in verse 13. Jeremiah 51, 13. And, and I, I want you to see before I read 13, I'm going to start in verse 11 uh, just so you can see who we're talking about here and why John's using this terminology. In verse 11, he says, The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Set up a standard against the walls of Babylon. Make the watch strong. Set up watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both planned and done what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. You who dwell by many waters... Rich in treasures, your end has come. The thread of your life is cut. 
Okay, so John is pulling on this image of the destruction of Babylon from Jeremiah. And he's saying, this is Babylon the Great. And she is preparing for destruction. She's seated on many waters, but her waters, she who dwells by many waters, rich in treasures, her end has come. Okay, so you can see the, the parallels that are there, and, and hopefully it's a, it's a picture that you can see. But uh, this idea of spiritual unfaithfulness, um, the, the best book in the Bible for it is in Ezekiel. And, and Ezekiel uh, it gets a little sketchy in some places <laughs> for a mixed crowd, but uh, we, we're talking about the Bible here, so we're going to read it. So look at Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 15. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 15. And if your Bible's like mine, chapter 16, uh, this whole section here is opening up, and it says, the Lord's faithless bride. A faithless bride uh, means he's, he's wedded to her, he's joined himself to her, and she is doing what, chapter, uh, what verse 15 says. It says, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver which I had given you and made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. You get the picture. You get the picture. This is idolatry in a picture that hopefully the people can understand. Because do we understand idolatry in our, in our you know, physical nature? No, we, we don't because we're not God. Okay, and so you can't commit idolatry against me because I'm not a God, okay? But my wife could commit adultery and that plays at some of the pain that God must feel when his people, his bride, those that he has called for his own, called out for himself, wedded himself to, united himself with, turn away from him and seek after other lovers. That, that's some of the sense of what God is getting at here. Uh, it's not the whole thing. It's a weak picture, but it's the best picture that we can see in our mortality. I think that the vileness of it comes out in that uh, they violated that sacred covenant that yeah. God had made with them. And that goes to the idea of the marriage. Uh, he had covenant with them. And we know that a covenant's a bond made in blood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what just makes it so hideous. Yeah, and, and it was a covenant that, that he was pretty clear what we keep going back to the covenant of Abraham because that was a covenant that was a, a unilateral covenant. It was God making a covenant with people. He says, I'm going to do these things regardless of you. I'm going to do these things. I will remember my promises that I made to Abraham and to, jo and to uh, um, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to Joseph, to, to your fathers. I made this promise and I'm going to keep my promises, he says. He doesn't go back to Moses' covenant because Moses' covenant was a bilateral treaty. It was, if you do these things, then I will bless you and give you the land. But they didn't. They, they chickened out even before they got to the land. They got to Kadesh Barnea and said, 
Oh, they're big. They're giants. We can't do it. And he's like, I'm with you. I just brought you out of Egypt. And they say, no, we can't do it. No, we can't do it. And so they wander, and the whole generation dies. that's That's a bilateral agreement. And if they don't, he won't. So that's the reason why Israel has never gotten the land that was promised to them. They have never captured all of it because they were supposed to have all the way to the Euphrates. If you read in Genesis and you hear the description of the land, this this beautiful land that's there uh, that was promised to Abraham that he walks off this land, they never get all of it. They never get all of it because they weren't faithful to that covenant that was there. But God remained faithful to his promises to Abraham and he's going to continue his faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, and he brings about Jesus, and he fulfills his promises to Abraham through Christ in the church. And that's what all of, uh, when, when you know, Paul is talking in Galatians and Romans about uh, the righteous shall live by faith, and that uh, those who are sons of Abraham are sons of the covenant, you know, that, that sons of Abraham aren't just sons by blood, but they're sons by faith. That's the, the picture that's being drawn there. Uh, that, that God is going to be faithful to his covenant. He's going to find the people which he has purchased. He's going to find his bride. Uh, but the, the bride that he had wedded himself to in Israel has been unfaithful. They've been wicked and have gone away. That's Hosea. You look at Hosea. Why did Hosea have to go marry a prostitute in the Old Testament? It was a picture. It was a picture of God as the prophet Hosea marrying a woman that would not return his affections. She continued to leave, continued to go after others, and he kept going for her until she gets on the chopping block being sold into slavery, and he comes and sells everything that he has to redeem her, to buy her back, to ransom her back from slavery. That's what Christ does for us. (laughs) That, That we are the faithless bride that he buys back with his blood. That's, that's a beautiful picture, and it, and it pulls all throughout Scripture. Um, but here we see who she is, uh, and that she is drunk with the blood of the saints. So not only is she just a harlot here, and that, that the people are, are attached to her, but that she has attacked the saints, you know, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So, so somehow she is attached to this persecution that is going on. Well, where do we get that? We'll go back to Revelation 2. Uh, and we're looking at verse 20. Revelation 2, 20. Remember, these are written to churches, right? Well, when he's writing to the church at Thyatira, he says, I know your works. This is starting in verse 19. I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works have exceeded the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. that, That is the picture that we see here, that this woman, this prophetess, has slithered her way into the group of saints here, and she is pulling believers, if possible, away from God and towards idolatry. And so it's, it's right there. And, and he minces no words about what he's going to do. He says, I will 
Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead, and the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and will give to each of you according to your works. Like, no, no mincing of words there. He's serious about this. This is serious business. But she is drunk with the blood of the saints, as we saw uh, last week back in chapter 16 uh, in verse 6 where it says for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink that's what they deserve Okay, the same imagery there that uh, the blood is on her hands as well as she is partnering with the beast right, what time are we at? we have a minute there's no way I'm getting through this Okay, so we will pick up um, next week here and finish up this. I know y'all are all looking forward to figuring out what in the world these kings are. Uh, there's seven kings, and there's an eighth one that's like the seventh, and there's a fifth one that's dead. No, what? What are we talking about here? Who, who is this? I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. Read a little bit of history, and then look at Daniel as well, and look at Any newspaper will help you do it, too. Uh, we'll get into it. We'll get into it and figure out, okay, I think John had an idea of who this was in his mind, uh, in his day. And he says, if, if this happens tomorrow, I wouldn't be surprised. John's saying that. And he would call it the last hour in his epistles. He'd say, we're in the last hour. He, he's like, we're right here. It's, it's almost time. And today we're still saying, we're in the last hour. And I think we can look around us uh, and not make a prediction and say, oh, Jesus is coming back in two weeks because uh, it's the election. When the election happens, when that, it's, the, it's happening. I'm not making predictions like that. I'm saying we're in the last hour. It's here. Uh, and all of these things that are being predicted were being predicted by John for his day, for future days, and for future days for us. And one of the things, going with what you just said, is that if you know anything about today, hmm. who knows what today is? Sunday. Sunday. Well, Sunday, yes. It's a special Sunday, though. September 27th. It is, is Yom, Yom Kippur. Kippur. Yes. And your hardcore dispensationalists will tell you that this could be the day of the rapture because of the feasts and different things. Other of them say that uh, we should have expected it on the Feast of Trumpets. Hmm. Yeah, on the new year. At the last trump? Yeah. So so if I didn't show up tonight, you know, if, if we were still sitting at the house, would you have been like, maybe it was the rapture? No. <laughs> I would have said you fell asleep. Oh, okay. That would have probably been closer to the right answer. All right. Let's pray and we will, I'll let y'all go home as it's getting dark outside. Father God, we thank you for your, your kindness and your grace toward us. Lord, we, we pray that you would give us eyes to, to look around us and to see the beast at work, to see uh, that great dragon, your uh, former heavenly host that has fallen away in pride and who is standing up in pride against you as he seeks to pull anyone he can into his influence and to pull them away from your salvation and from your grace and your love and your eternity.
God, I pray that you would help us to see the forces at work around us that are more than just physical, but are, are indeed spiritual. To know, as Paul says, that, that we don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and, uh, of darkness in high places. God, we, uh, we wrestle with these things as we seek to live out our lives in this world. Uh, help us to be in this world, but not of this world as we seek to glorify you in everything that we do and say. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.